Welcome to Oncology Today, the management of red fusion positive non-small cell lung cancer. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. For this program, I met with Dr. Justin Gaynor from the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. In addition to this interview program, there's also a corresponding video featuring Dr. Gaynor's slide presentation. To begin, I asked him for his thoughts on some of the key ongoing phase three trials evaluating RET inhibition versus chemotherapy as first-line therapy for RET fusion-positive metastatic disease. Any thoughts about whether or not in this first-line metastatic setting with these patients, uh, you would see a survival difference? It's a great, great question. And, you know, I would wager that we will not see a survival difference. And the, the reason I say that is, one, because I expect very high rates of crossover. And in the prime example, the, the prime comparison to make would be in the ALK space. And, and here we have really, so there were two studies, right, that were similarly designed, the J-ALK study and the global ALK study, right? So these were pretty much near identical studies. We can talk a little bit about the nuance. You know, one had a different dose, one had a different testing strategy requiring double positivity, but they also differed in one allowed crossover and one did not. The study that did not allow crossover showed an overall survival benefit. Um, so this was electinib versus chemotherapy. So the study that didn't allow a crossover uh, showed a survival benefit. The one that did allow crossover did not. So it's the same comparison, electinib versus chemo in the same genetic alteration. One shows survival, one doesn't. And I think it's all just from, from uh, crossover. So both of these studies allow crossover. And so I don't think we're gonna see a survival difference. They'll probably do some statistical, just you know modifications to account for the crossover, but to me, I don't need to see a cross uh, survival benefit to change you know, my practice. And is that you know basically related to quality of life and toxicity? I think it's gonna be overwhelmingly positive with respect to progression-free survival. And to your earlier point, it, it's that these drugs also work so well as salvage when someone progresses on platinum doublet. And you know, when we see that reflected in the high response rates there, the concern I always have is that not everyone makes it to the second line therapy, right? Um, and so to me, I would not have equipoise in putting a patient on those randomized studies. Uh, you know, in the EGFR space, we, we, we've done it over, you know, we have three, four different studies comparing targeted therapy versus chemo the RET inhibitors seem to work, you know, really well, just like the EGFR inhibitors. So, I, you know, the FDA has been very clear. We don't need randomized studies like that. Um, I think this is when we talk to my European counterparts, it's, it's more the payers, um, regulators worldwide that are wanting to get the randomized data. I was kind of surprised. I didn't realize those trials were going on. Are those a similar kind of randomized first-line trials versus chemo going on with any other targeted therapy right now? It's a good question. Um, not that I'm aware of. Uh, and yeah, I we wasn't could, we either. Could, we could point to ROS1, right? You know, ROS1 is similar in terms of frequency, 1% to 2%. 
uh, showed very impressive activity in terms of response rate and PFS. And everyone's been okay with, with just single arm studies. So to me, I, I, I don't know why there's this push for the randomized studies. So another question uh, coming out of your talk is in the beginning, you were going through the various uh, RET abnormalities that occur, uh, including abnormalities outside of fusions. Uh, are any of those abnormalities considered, you know, driver mutations or potential targets, or is it just sort of noise? It's a great question, an important one. So, so those are considered drivers, and hmm. uh, they're drivers in different tumor types. So rarely in lung cancer, we don't really see red point mutations. Uh, but in thyroid cancer, specifically medullary thyroid cancer, we actually do see both both the extracellular uh, domain mutations that, that lead to this, you know, ligand depend, you know, uh, the dimers and constitutive activation, as well as point mutations in the kinase domain that are activating as monomers. So those are you know, prototypical alterations for medullary thyroid cancer. And we have seen, you know, I didn't show it here, but both prosatinib and salpercatinib also very active in patients with medullary thyroid cancer, as well as with papillary thyroid cancer. In fact, sulfurcatinib just uh, recently gained a tissue-type uh, tissue agnostic approval, uh, much like NTRAC. So regardless of the tissue of origin, if there's a RET fusion, sulfurcatinib is now FDA-approved there. Yeah, I was going to ask you about this whole concept of pan-tumor approvals. I was kind of surprised that recently we saw the BRAF pan-tumor approval, and I was like, I don't even know how much data there is outside of lung and melanoma. Um, but any thoughts in general about where we're heading in terms of pan-tumor approvals, what we're going to need to see, and uh, particularly in terms of RET? So you're saying... Just selpercatinib has a pan-tumor approval, not pralcetinib? Correct. So pralcetinib has data, so that there is the other RET fusion-type cohort um, that has been reported and, and also shows very comparable activity. I think from a regulatory standpoint, it hasn't passed that hurdle yet. Um, I, I would anticipate it will, but um, from a regulatory perspective, it's not there yet. But it's interesting that you bring up BRAF, right? Because BRAF, I, I always point to as an example of where, you know, the same driver behaves very differently depending on tumor uh, site. You know, colorectal cancer, you know, doesn't behave nearly the same as melanoma and lung cancer. And so I think that that's the cautionary tale, right? That that, that um, you, you need to, to do the studies um, I think there are now concerted efforts to try to develop a framework here. So, for example, ESMO, uh, one of the precision medicine working groups that I'm a member of, is, is trying to develop a, a framework here for how do we think about tissue-type agnostic approvals and drug development in that space. Um, you know, RET is an example of where there are, and NTRAC is also uh, an example of this where there are tumor types where it's very common, so like medullary thyroid, and then, uh, but but those tumor types population-wide are rare, 
And then there are tumor types that are very common in the general population, like lung cancer, of which RET constitutes a very small percentage. I think, how, how do we develop drugs for disease entities like that? I think we're, we're still learning, but I think NTRAC and RET does give us a roadmap. So, yeah, I was uh, thinking, too, in terms of hematologic cancers, which usually people don't think about, you know, it's kind of separate. But I think I've seen some reports of, I know you have ALK-related lymphomas, and I think I've maybe seen reports of response in hematologic cancers to ALK therapy. I'm not sure exactly what, but what about heme tumors? Do you see it, or any of these sort of pan-tumor uh, alterations, including RET? It's a good question. I'm not aware of hematological malignancies that have RET as a driver. Um, there are, you know, BRAF, I think Harry cell. Um, right. That's about as far as I know. But, well, my, but myeloma, yes. also BRAF. Yeah, so I, th I think there are, are examples, but you're, but you're right. I think we, we have to, I don't think we can then apply this universally and say that, okay, there, there's this alteration and, and it's going to work equally well for hematologic malignancies. I think we need to do the studies. So another thing I wanted to pick up from your talk that um, I don't know how it really wasn't on my radar till I saw the paper. I think it might've been mentioned, but I, I no one ever really discussed this chylothorax thing. And actually ascites also apparently, not just pleural fusions, correct? So, uh, again, you were mentioning that, um, you know, it's unclear what the etiology of this is. I guess there were, you all have looked at some of these patients in more detail in terms of lymphatic systems. And uh, any other examples? I think dasatinib you mentioned as an example where you see the, any other cancers and any uh, theory about what's going on here. Very unusual toxicity, I think. It is very unusual, and, and we did look at, you know, we lined up the selectivity profiles of dasatinib right next to sulforcatinib or prosatinib, and we really didn't see any overlap there. Uh, interestingly, in, in that manuscript, we, we did look at all of our prosatinib-treated patients, and we didn't see uh, uh, chylothorax in, in those patients. So I don't think this is a RET, like, on-target effect. I think it has to be off target, but what that target is, I don't know. Uh, we have, as you alluded to, we have done, you know, uh, various uh, lymphatic uh, mapping type uh, procedures, and you know, th there's no, it's not an anatomical, you know, defect. Um, you know, these patients weren't having thoracic surgery or had like thoracic duct uh, injured. The this does look more of a systemic insult in these patients. And so I've, I've typically managed them by drains, pleurodesis, and I've had conversations about if someone is responding to therapy, but this is becoming really cumbersome, do we switch from what, one RET inhibitor to another? Um, so far, my patients haven't been willing to make that switch um, because they're otherwise responding. You brought up the critical point about diagnosis there and making sure people realize that it could be this as opposed to disease progression. But uh, do you actually see, you know, problems with the need for a repeat of thoracentesis, paracentesis, or is it usually not, uh, you know, sort of a symptomatic issue? Uh, 
So it actually can be a symptomatic issue. And the patients where I've encountered this, it, it does, you know, we, we've tried to do pleurodesis and, and they still develop recurrent uh, thorax, And so we have, you know, I have a patient right now who's who every two months when she flies up to Boston, she has her thoracentesis because she is symptomatic. You know, she feels she's about due for her next drain. And so we time it around our visits. And you said this, I mean, this is not a rare thing. It's like five to 10% of people. Yeah. Yeah. It's around 7%. So it's, it, you're right. It's not rare. It's not the majority of patients, but I think it's worth knowing about, especially if, if you're a general oncologist, you're treating thyroid cancer, you're treating lung cancer. If you see enough of these patients, you know, being aware of it um, is important. And this came up simply, you know, myself, Jess Lynn, and, and Alex Drillon had all observed it and, and then putting the pieces together. Hey, I've seen a case. This is unusual. You've seen a case. And, and then systematically going through all of our patients together. You know, there's a number of situations in uh, targeted therapy of lung cancer where you have more than one agent in the same field. Obviously, it seems like most of them have more than one. And you, a lot of times, and I can, I think I've asked this question a lot, for example, with Rhett, and you say to investigators, do you have any preference for pralcetinib versus selpercatinib? I think most people say no, because it's hard to distinguish them. But even though this chylocytis in pleural fusions is not common, I mean, that's not, I mean, that is a differentiating feature. I mean, do you prefer to use pralcetinib for that reason? Not necessarily. I think if we had to compare adverse events, you know, we see more of the of this chylocyfusion. We see QTC with selpercatinib. Um, on the flip side with pralcetinib, we see more uh, leukopenia, and we see it higher rates of pneumonia slash pneumonitis. Um, the rates of hypertension are pretty consistent. Rates of transaminase look pretty consistent between the two drugs. You know, from, from my standpoint, it's a balance of the safety side of things. I think from an intracranial activity side of things look pretty comparable. Response rates look pretty comparable. The updated PFS data, acknowledging all of the caveats of cross-trial comparisons, especially when they're single-arm studies. I mentioned the differences in, in eligibility criteria. You know, numerically, are our, our, our smidge higher for selpercatinib. So, um, you know, I have comfort with both drugs. Uh, selpercatinib does have the first mover advantage, which which is always an advantage. It was approved first. I'm sure you have a million trial options for your patients, but if for some reason it's you are going outside a trial setting, is it a complete coin flip or do you have any preference? No, for, from my perspective, I, since I, I led the, the study of pralcetinib, I, you know, I have a lot of familiarity with the drug. Um, that said, I also participated in the libretto study. So, so when I was enrolling patients, you know, it, it was where, where could I get a, a slot because we were seeing exciting act, activity with both. So, you know, for me, you know, I, I probably prescribed uh, selpercatinib a bit more of late, but um, as you said, 
you know, we're talking di slight differences on the margins here. And it also depends on, on the toxicity profiles. So a couple other general questions, again, before we get to your cases, sort of some issues that um, we hear discussed for all types of targeted therapy in general, but in, particularly in lung cancer. One is the use of targeted therapy for brain mets and particularly holding off on radiation therapy, that paradigm. So, you know, that started out with EGFR and ALK, and you, know, you see oncologists doing that with, you know, a lot of the targeted therapy, particularly in patients with asymptomatic brain mets, the idea of holding off on whole brain or even stereotactic and using uh, targeted therapy. Do you generally embrace that paradigm for your patients with RET? I do. I do. Um, because we, we now have the data showing really profound intracranial activity of both agents. You know, we're talking about response rates of 70, 85 percent. So and, and, you know, the responses are brisk. They occur very early on and generally faster than you can get the radiation mapping. And, and so for me, um, I, I would as long as the patient isn't too symptomatic, um, I would favor upfront targeted therapy there. And another paradigm that's discussed a lot in targeted therapy is the use of immunotherapy and checkpoint inhibitors. And particularly, again, EGFR and ALK, a lot of reluctance in investigators to use them early on or even use them at all. Again, where does RET fit into that? Uh, how do you uh, approach second-line therapy in patients progressing? Is it worth it to get a liquid biopsy looking for anything in particular for a general oncologist in practice? All good questions. So in terms of activity, so I think RET lands more along the ALK EGFR ROS1 spectrum in terms of its immunogenicity. So these are low tumor mutation burden tumors. Um, Mark Gawad uh, from Dana-Farber recently had a paper for which we collaborated with him on and, and one of the supplements showed like tumor mutation burden across drivers. And you know, the RET fusions were, were very, very low on the order of ALK. Um, and so, and, and that's consistent with the fact that these are never smokers, and in, 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 for the most part, are limited smokers. And so to me, you know, the retrospective data has shown that single agent PD-1 inhibitors has relatively modest activity. You're talking less than 10% response rates in that patient population. Uh, the question though is if someone's progressed on targeted therapy, say they have, you know, they start with pralsatinib, but they progress, First big point there is I don't think there's going to be, we can cycle through drugs. So if someone starts with the pralsatinib, I don't, and they progress, I don't think sulfurcatinib is going to be, you know, the right therapy. I think there is going to be cross resistance. You know, just the, the drugs are much more similar than they are different. So I don't think the answer is going to be to switch to a different selective RET inhibitor. For my patients, it would, the answer would be platinum doublet chemotherapy. And then we could have the conversation, do you add checkpoint or not? And I think that, you know, you're going to get differences of opinion there. Um, some people will make the argument that, well, you know, keynote 189, 
only excluded EGFR and ALK. And so RET technically was included there. Um, you know, other people make the point that I was alluding to, yeah, but it behaves just like EGFR and ALK. And so um, in my mind, I'm generally giving these patients platinum doublet chemotherapy alone. Um, but as you saw from the randomized study, they leave it up to the investigator. It's platinum doublet plus or minus Pembro um, as, as the control arm. What do you see in terms of PD-1 levels? You know, you hear about ALK having these high levels and they don't respond. What kind of levels do you see with the RET patients? I think for RET, it, it's, I think you have the full spectrum. It, you know, it's, it's not that they're always low or always high. I, I think it, it is similar to wild type patients in terms of the distribution, but the meaningfulness of it in terms of prediction of PD-1 pathway blockade is less. Um, because I think the oncogenic subtype trumps PDL1 expression levels. So to me, that, that wouldn't steer me one, one way or the other. The concern I always have when you stop the targeted therapy and switch to chemo plus Pembro would be, especially patients who have brain metastases, I worry about stopping the targeted therapy and their brain metastases exploding, and then I'm limited in my ability to restart the TKI. Uh, in terms of IOs in these red patients, though, when you get down third, fourth line, whatever, you know, you run out of approved options, you don't have trials, the patient wants to be treated. Do you use uh, IOs? I mean, I've heard people say for ALK, they don't ever, which is kind of interesting, but do you end up uh, offering an IO to these patients? I, I think it would be reasonable, you know, if, if someone's had, you know, I would generally favor single agent chemotherapy over a PD-1 inhibitor, but I think if someone is, you know, particularly if they have higher PD-1 expression, acknowledging what I just said earlier that, you know, the meaningfulness of that, you know, is questionable. Um, it's not unreasonable to try single agent PD-1 blockade, but I think laying expectations that the likelihood of response with that is low. And, and even when one does get a response, I think the durability of response to PD-1 inhibitors among these oncogene-driven lung cancers is, is shorter. So even when you do get a response, the magnitude of that response and the duration is going to be shorter, um, but certainly reasonable. Another sort of generic issue that comes up with targeted therapy of lung cancer is this issue of whether a recent IO is an issue or problem in terms of bringing in targeted therapy, seeing more toxicity. And of course, the most common situation is stage three, uh, non-surgical, patients are getting their Valumac consolidation. And I'll start out by saying, first of all, how do you approach those patients? If you know they have a RET fusion, do you still use their Valumab? And then if you see a patient or you have a patient who's gotten their Valumab and has a RET fusion and then they relapse shortly after that, do we, are you thinking they're going to have more toxicity or pneumonitis or, you know, you know the whole story there? Yeah. So the, uh, I'll preface this by saying, you know, these are becoming... Uh, increasingly common conversations at our tumor board. And uh, 
typically the conversation will, will uh, last the whole the, the duration of the tumor board will say a lot of things <laughs> and at the end of the day the conclusion is everyone puts up their hands and we say we don't know right um because there are arguments on both sides of the issue um and, and in some ways it's it's how you view the data you know some, some people are are purists and say hey specific you know uh you know allow these patients and so the standard of care there is you have to have a good reason not to give it right um so i think for someone who has a local advanced disease gets definitive chemo radiation i would have a conversation about dervalumab um i wouldn't be dogmatic about it one way or the other and uh, if after explaining risks and benefits a patient was interested in it i'd, I'd probably proceed with dervalumab uh, the question about what happens if someone progresses on the DERVA, what's the experience with TKI after, you know, these selective rep TKIs in that context? So we have a little bit of data. So it, it doesn't appear that we haven't seen the same degrees of toxicity as we did with EGFR inhibitors, um, smaller numbers. Um, what, what has been observed is, is some hypersensitivity reactions. So um, particularly with the self-recatinib so that people have experienced early on. So this occurs usually in the first couple of weeks. Um, uh, Dr. McCoach um, from uh, UCSF put together a nice paper on that, um, just showing that, that it did look like preceding checkpoint inhibitor was a risk factor for that. Um, but the rates, overall rates were, were low. It was manageable and, and it wasn't that that patients then were were deprived of of TKI? Um, that said, you know I, I think our gestalt over the last couple of years has been that if you use TKI post IO, you do see higher rates of toxicity kind of across the board. Some are much more pronounced than others, and so in someone where you have a high free test probability of having an oncogenic driver try to hold off on the PD-1 because some, some you know, oncogenic drivers like EGFR, you really can run into problems. We had a wild case like that with a post-derva relapse with EGFR. The doc wanted, the patient was really sick, very well informed. Doc sat down with the patient, explained the issue, and the patient said, okay, let's go for it. He sent him home with a pulse oximeter, steroids, instructions to go to the ER if he started to get short of breath. And guess what? He actually got pneumonitis. They got him through the pneumonitis, had a fantastic response, and now is doing great. But what a wild story. And you know, at least yeah. people are aware of this possibility. Yeah. So, um, you know, kind of moving in the same direction toward earlier stage disease, or we brought up the challenging issue of locally advanced, but then of course there's adjuvant. And, you know, uh, in terms of, obviously we have the Adora trial out there, which really started a new uh, uh, approach to uh, lung cancer in the adjuvant setting. And of course, everybody's saying, what about everything else? I don't I think you may have been on one of the webinars where we, we'll poll the audience and say, okay, you've got a patient with RET, if you have no reimbursement issues, they have stage three disease, would you want to use a RET inhibitor? Like 60% of the audience says yes, although the investigators all say no because there's no data. But any thoughts about it, uh, adjuvant use of RET inhibitors 
I am guessing there are trials going on, although I don't know how you get enough patients to really uh, see an effect. But what are your thoughts about that? Do you, for an educated patient, if you could get it, would you do it now? Great question. Um, so there are, there actually is an adjuvant self-recatative study that is currently ongoing. Um, we did not elect to participate in that because I was concerned just about feasibility. Right, you're talking about one to two percent of patients have this alteration, and and it's a randomized study. Um, so I applaud them for trying to do this study. Um, I still I still have questions about the feasibility of it. Um, so my approach, my, my thinking is, you know, we have the EGFR data. We, we actually do have uh, ongoing studies in ELK that, that are, um, they're, they're a little different, you know, like for example, it's electinib or chemo, that's the comparison. But, but I think if we were to get data EGFR and ELK, um, that to me would be enough to say, okay, now we can, generally extrapolate that to other drivers. Um, so especially if, you know, we're also gonna get the LCMC4 data, that's, that's neoadjuvant. There it's really looking at, you know, genotyping and then looking at rates of, of response preoperatively. But I think if, if you can just generate some of that data and you can say, okay, it's not gonna be feasible to do this for ROS1, NTRAC, all these other things, but those alterations behave just like EGFR and ELK. And so now, now we're going to make the leap. I think that's, that's where I see the field moving. I still don't know if we're, I, I don't think we're curing more people with that strategy. You know, I, I do think this is really a relapse-free survival benefit. And that TKI's, you know, ability to cure more, more patients, I, I, I worry that upon discontinuation, we're going to see that drop off in terms of relapse. So is that your sort of expectation for Adora and EGFR in the adjuvant setting or a Samertinib? Yeah, I mean, that's what we saw in the SELECT trial. So the SELECT trial was, was a single-arm study. And during the first two years, more than 90% of patients were, were disease-free. And then the study stopped. This is with Erlotinib. The study stopped at two years, and then you saw the, the fall-off. And... That's not to say that relapse-free survival isn't a worthwhile, like it's not important to be disease-free, um, but I think it's it's about having that conversation with the patient of the difference there. Are we curing more people? Are we delaying recurrence? So, yeah, that is a critical question. Although, you know, you look at the uh, ADORA trial too and you see the brain mets, you know, 10% versus 1%. And, you just sort of think about what people's life, and I think a lot of it relates to tolerability. And yeah. although, you know, you see, you certainly can see issues with osimertinib, but I'm thinking chylothorax might not go down very well in the adjuvant setting. Yeah, that, I, think, I think that is, you know, especially if someone's had disruption of the chest wall, right? You know, we, we know that that can be a risk factor for traumatic chylothorax, but um, you're right, I think, the, the discontinuation rates that you see in the adjuvant setting are likely going to be much higher. We, we see that with checkpoint inhibitors, certainly. Um, the threshold to continue a drug in the adjuvant setting is just different. Yeah, that's a great point. All right, well, let's uh, go through your cases and kind of get into the real world here. 
uh, starting out with your 65-year-old woman. So she, you saw her in 2015 when she presented or somebody else did? Someone else did. So I, I put that there just to, to reflect and just to show that, you know, the initial management may be a bit different than what we've been talking about. This person was eventually referred to me, um, you know, for some of the trials that we've gone over. So this was a 65-year-old never smoker, uh, initially presented with some chest discomfort. One thing led to another, came into the ED, showed a five centimeter lung mass with diffuse metastases, biopsies showed a liver lesion, uh, biopsy of the liver lesion showed adenocarcinoma, pretty classic uh, for uh, lung origin. This patient, again, 2015, he was treated with carboplatin pemetrexid. Right? Back then we weren't even doing a 189 regimen it's not shown in the slide, but she did have testing at the time, which showed a RET fusion. Um, we didn't know about them back in 2015, but but even when we found them, we, we generally weren't using first-line therapy, and, and essentially this person's local doc had uh, you know just done carbopam followed by PEM maintenance after two years developed progressive disease. And this really shows Hemotrexid can work well in RET fusions. Uh, we do have a couple of retrospective series showing, you know, Hemotrexid is actually quite good for fusion-driven lung cancers. By this point, 2017, at, we just had some single agent data with cabazantinib, and this patient was started off-label with cabazantinib, a best response of stable disease. Uh, you know, in the studies, CABO produced a response rate of like 25, 30%. So this is um, pr pretty typical of, of what we saw there. Um, upon progression, and this patient also required dose reductions on the CABO, started at 60, had to go down to 40, which, which is par for the course. You know, more than two thirds of patients have to, have to dose reduce the CABO. Uh, the patient came to see me for clinical studies, started on sulfurcatinib um, as part of the libretto study, achieved a partial response, and overall has tolerated therapy quite well. Uh, mild hypertension, little low white blood cell count, but that's it. You know, and th this, this is now going on four years. Patient went with an ongoing response to therapy. Now, this is longer than median, and, and I think this is also reflects that sometimes patients, especially those who enroll in the phase one, right, you know, have a different biology, right? She was on carbopem for two years. It was able, you know, that sometimes the responses that we see in patients who have had multiple lines of therapy and then made it onto the study, you know, can do quite well. And, and that was reflected in this patient here. Have you ever heard your colleague, uh, Dr. Kamage, talk about his idea of the time capsule, putting a patient in a time capsule? Have you ever heard that one? Because this I patient heard reminds, him. Well, you, this patient is a perfect example of that. What he says is that a lot of times you just, you're just you just trying to get the patient to, to survive to see the new drug. And that's exactly what happened yeah. to her. You, she was able to be maintained for a couple of years with the chemo and... Uh, uh, Cabo, et cetera, to get the therapy that she really needed. So I think that's a pretty good example of, of that. Okay. As I'm pulling this up, it does remind me, uh, Bapu Jenna is, is an economist at Harvard. Um, we trained together and, and he, he gave an interesting perspective on that, you know, the time capsule of, of assigning value to medicines, right? 
you know, and he gives the analogy of HIV. And HIV, you know, if you then got onto AZT, that by itself maybe had limited value. But the greater value is that it, it allowed you to then live long enough to make it to the next generation of antiretrovirals and, and so that you're alive in 2022. And some could make the point of CABO for this patient. Maybe it had stable disease long enough, right, in order to have the performance status to then make it onto the libretto study and, and is still with us. So it's an interesting perspective on, on assigning value. That whole idea of value, I remember we did a, a, a day-long think tank on like value and you know, quality and oncology. And, you know, when you get, it, this gets back to what we were talking about before in terms of first line and quality of life, you know, what value do you put on, do you put on avoiding chemo and all the side effects of chemo and taking a relatively, you know, uh, uncomplicated oral medication? It's hard to even figure out what that is. And then I think this idea that you just mentioned is even more complex in terms of, you know, I guess it depends on how promising uh, the tumor is that you have. I guess pancreatic cancer maybe doesn't help to hang on for a few more months, but so much has happened and seems like in almost every other part of oncology that maybe that really does play. I think about CAR-T and hematologic cancers. Anyhow, interesting. All right, let's hear about your 53-year-old woman. Yeah, so th this is another time capsule case then. Um, also treated at, at a large academic medical institution uh, initially. So uh, never smoker, really nothing in the way of past medical history, just a persistent cough. Had a chest x-ray that showed a left lower lobe uh, lung mass and an enlarged hilar node. Had a lobectomy and mediastinal lymph node dissection. Ultimately diagnosed with uh, stage 2B disease at the time. She was treated with four cycles of adjuvant cisplatin and pemetrexid, which she did well, and then entered surveillance. Unfortunately, uh, the following year, uh, repeat scans showed an enlarging pulmonary nodule in the contralateral lung. They did a PET CT, showed no other sites of disease, and at that point, they decided to give her the benefit of the doubt that this was a separate primary. I think reasonable to do, uh, undergoes surgical resection. Pathology showed a moderately differentiated adenocarcinoma that at least morphologically looked identical to her original cancer. She did well for three years thereafter, but then surveillance scans showed new bilateral lung nodules, liver lesions, supracurricular adenopathy, they did a CT-guided liver biopsy that showed recurrent disease. They did molecular genotyping at the time, but all that showed was negative for ALK and ROS1, EGFR wild type, PDL1 expression was 55%. Uh, again, she was a never smoker. She was treated with Pembro monotherapy, for which she had a best response of primary progression. She was then actually enrolled in two subsequent clinical trials, all immunotherapy-based trials. Um, both times she developed slow progression of disease. At this point, after she progressed again, she had a repeat biopsy and they did a broader panel of sequencing that this time included RET and she was found to have an NCOA for RET fusion 
At this point, she was referred to me. She traveled to Boston, enrolled in the Aero study. Uh, she has achieved a PR, very quick symptomatic improvement. She'd been having a lot of left upper quadrant pain. Um, and that, that resolved almost instantly. And I just saw her in clinic about two weeks ago. Um, she's at the 3.5 year mark and she's doing great. Her scans continue to show uh, a PR and her main AEs are grade two hypertension, which now she's on a little lisinopril and that, that's, that's well controlled and grade one neutropenia. And I commented on that before, you know, typically we see the neutropenia early on, but it's been quite stable. So yeah, we talk about patient reported outcomes. I wonder what kind of value this woman puts on her pralcetinib after three and a half years. But um, the other thing that this brings up, first of all, if you backtrack to when she first got diagnosed with the, uh, and had the adjuvant uh, chemo for stage 2B, I guess that would have been the question there. If they, I don't, I don't, obviously the Brett Fusion wasn't known about that at that point. But again, a patient like that presenting today would be maybe tempting if there was no trial available to treat. But I mean, you tell me. Yeah, I mean, if we had the retrospectoscope, yeah. I mean, then again, she did well for three years, really, with no therapy. Um, so, uh, you know, I think today, would I have given her self-recatum or Pelsan? Probably not. Um, I'd be tempted. I'd have the conversation, but I'd say, you know, we have something in our back pocket should this recur. Um, but I think this is really striking and, and also illustrates that, you know, I, I recognize everyone's busy in their clinics, but it is important to... You know, many times we'll know like what what was negative, but but you also want to say what platform was used, right? And what what was not included in that platform in terms of testing. Um, and this is a prime example, right? You know that this person's you know life would have been very very different. Her prognosis would have been far shorter if she hadn't been retested, and her her doc had recognized that she hadn't had complete sequencing data at the time. Yeah, that was actually gonna be my next question because the other thing I hear about are people who have negative and even extensive NGS, but they're positive on RNA assays. Maybe you could explain a little bit about that. And is it only non-smokers where you really are aggressive, you know, pushing, pushing everything you can? I mean, that's the message. We've gotten, I imagine you, I mean, do you ever see RET in a smoker? You, you can. And so for, for me, it, it depends on, you know, do, do I have a clear other driver? So if someone had a KRAS G12V mutation, I'm not going to push it. Um, but if it's just showing P53, maybe. Um, the other thing I, I look at, the quality of the sequencing. So, um, my molecular pathologist will, will actually add a note at the bottom and say low tumor cellularity. And those are the cases where regardless of smoking status, you know, if, you know, there's low tumor cellularity in the case, you may be missing an alteration. And so th those are cases where I generally maybe reach for a liquid biopsy first uh, to, to try to get an answer. Um, your question about RNA versus DNA, we, we know that fusions because many times the breakpoints are within the introns, you know, maybe missed on DNA-based sequencing assays. Because if you're using DNA-based sequencing, you have to tile your primers all along those introns. And 
there are some fusions like Ross One, for example, where there are tons of different fusion partners. So you may not be covering it in your sequencing platform. So an RNA-based platform makes that much simpler because you're just looking at the RNA. So um, that would be something that, that I would certainly think about for a patient, particularly when you have a high pretest probability. So let's go on to your last case, the 68-year-old woman, the nurse anesthetist, and here it is, chylothorax. I'm really curious to hear what happened with this case. Yeah, I, I alluded to her a, lo a little earlier, but you know, she presented to her PCP. Her her husband's also a physician, and uh, you know, had significant metastatic disease, including CNS disease. Had the biopsy. The brain mats were really small, you know, a couple millimeters. But I, I think there is a, a psychological aspect as well of having brain metastases, and for her, just like the impulse was, I I, I just need to get those radiated right away. And so she had surtactic uh, radio surgery and then got one cycle of carbopam while molecular testing was pending. And then at that point, the rest of her NGS came back, showed a CCDC6 ret fusion. She was switched to self-recatinib, achieved a PR. And this is the one where, you know, 12 months into therapy, she developed an enlarging right side of fusion. I thought this was going to be disease progression, but lo and behold, you know, my interventional pulmonologist calls me and says, this is completely white. Um, you know, just looking at it, sent off triglycerides and chylothorax. You know, she's explored a variety. We've pleurodeister. We've now intermittently drained. She, she had explored, uh, you know, lymphangiograms and things like that. But, you know, I, I discourage because I think this is more of a systematic issue. Um, we, we've had many a conversation about, you know, quality of life, given the chylus uh, societies and effusion, and should we switch to pralsatinib? Uh, we talk about it every visit, but uh, right now, because she's still responding, she's like, I, I don't want to mess with success. And uh, she's willing to, which I can appreciate. Totally, totally can appreciate. But on the other hand, wow. It seems like not the easiest thing to deal with. This concludes our program. Special thanks to Dr. Gaynor, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Oncology Today.